If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 34. A slightly longer reading this morning. So sometimes with the longer readings, it's helpful to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one not too far away. Most of the pews have Bibles, I believe. Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 34. We'll read the entire chapter. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dina, and his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. 
They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Thus far the reading of God's word. You turn in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 6. Bringing this section of teaching to a close as the Lord has warned us about certain dangers attending not life in general, but the life of worship, uh, the life of religious devotion. Uh, there's a danger attending even acts which supposedly are directed directly to the Lord. Fasting is the third of three in this section. And so we come to verses 16 through 18. This is God's word. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we acknowledge and admit that very often your word is strange to us, Um, and uh, reflecting upon this, Lord, we admit that uh, you are strange to us. Uh, that we uh, do not know you as we ought, Lord. We far too often prefer our own understanding and are content to fashion you in our image and likeness. And resist, Father, your a good work of conforming us into your image and likeness. And so we ask, Lord, now for that posture of humility before your word, uh, which you are pleased to bless, and through which, Lord, you engage in that excellent work of renovation, nurturing us, convicting us, opening our eyes more and more, Lord, to the dreadful reality of sin, and the wonders of your love on display in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the forgiveness and in the righteousness which you have made known. So bless this word, Lord, as it goes forth. Bless us as we receive of it. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. 
Uh, I want to begin by making an observation about the section as a whole, as we just pointed out. You might look at this as instead of an introduction, you get a pre-sermon. <laughs> so I'm going to preach a little sermon and then I'm going to preach a big sermon. So we'll be here for two to three hours. <laughs> but it seems appropriate to mark that the Lord has spent an extended amount of attention warning us about our life of religious practice. He spent this whole chapter up until this point, starting in verse one, about the dangers of practicing our righteousness. And so as he brings this to a close, I thought it was fitting to make some observations before we speak directly to the strange practice of fasting. Just the amount of attention that he's given this, the fact that he's given three different examples, and we can probably assume that these aren't an exhaustive set of examples. It isn't that these are the only three religious practices which are vulnerable to the danger of practicing righteousness before men and disregarding God altogether. It seems that our entire Christian life lived unto God is vulnerable to this danger. Furthermore, this section sits at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. And that alone gives it a certain importance, a certain centrality. So it's as if the Lord is saying, hey, listen up, this is really important for us. And so what should we learn from this centrality of the warning against religious sin? Those sins which take the vague guise of piety of religiousness. One, we learn that religious sin is relentless. It's like Hercules' hydra. If you cut off one head, several more seem to sprout up in its place. If you close the door to sin in giving, it will try the window of prayer. If you close the window of prayer, it will try the cracks of fasting. It doesn't give up so easily. It's eager to corrupt the Christian life and it will not cease until it does. Again, this list is not exhaustive. It invites us to consider how this very thing can play out, not just in our giving, not just in our praying, not just in our fasting, but in our worshiping, our singing, our helping are taking the Lord's Supper. All of these things can be done with an incongruity, an insincerity, a pride, a pompousness, which makes the entire act repugnant to the Lord and harmful to one another. We learn that religious sin is relentless, threatening to plague our Christian life at every turn, and it shows us our constant need the constant call for diligence and vigilance in addition to our need for the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who can facilitate the inner person to truly understand and partake of the truth of what he's setting before us. Two, we learn that religious sin is impudent. Our religious sin is brazen, impiously defiant, It's like Antiochus Epiphanes setting up an image of Zeus in the middle of the temple. Or Caligula constructing an image of himself in the temple. 
It honors no boundaries. It holds nothing sacred. It insinuates itself into the very acts of our personal religious exercises, indeed into the very household of God. Once again, we can learn diligence from this, but also wisdom. We're not taken aback or taken by surprise that we must engage in a certain spiritual warfare even in these holy practices. Even in the exercise of worship itself, we're not surprised to find the enemy seeking to pervert these gifts. Three, our religious sin is grotesque. It takes something lovely and destroys it by making it a parody, a harm, a monstrosity. It's the heart of Grendel taking on the mask of Beowulf. It's the smile and the knife. It's the kiss and the betrayal. We learn from this to shudder before this sin and run to Christ for it is monstrous. But we're also prepared to see these sins for what they are. Not to be deceived by mere appearances, not to be content with mere appearances, but to consistently ask God to search our hearts as the only one who looks not as man, but as God, who peers into the state of your soul. No one else can do that. Consider your closest companion. How well have they seen into your soul? Do they know the full extent of your darkness? I assure you, they do not. But the Lord does. Do not content yourself in being surface known. But before the Lord Rejoice that there is one who knows to the depth of your being and who has set forth the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing the truth of your darkness, asking that you not deceive yourself concerning its proper extent, but rather flee into his arms as the one who set forth by the one who knows sin truly. And last, religious sin has its most devastating quality in its power to self-deceive. Throughout the Lord warns of hypocrisy. The hypocrite. And we're forced to ask a terrifying question. Does the hypocrite know they are a hypocrite? To which we are forced to answer no. They do not. (laughs) They are self-deceived at the most fundamental level. They think they are pursuing good, and the very good they are pursuing is their destruction. They're like wretched Anna. Every step she takes towards that which she thinks will bring her life plunges her further into her ruin. Such is the self-deceptive power of religious sin. Those who think they're closest are truly farthest. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus Christ says? The prostitutes and the tax collectors go in. The Pharisees and the scribes are the farthest away. 
Beloved, tremble that we carry this power in us. Do you understand that? That every single one of us carries this dreadful power in us. If you think that is not true of you, doubly tremble because it shows that you're much closer to its grips than the one who prays, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I have this in me. Can you hear that? We need not stop there trembling at the face of this dreadful power because we've also been shown the one who has all power, all authority, such that no power is his rival. If the sea gives way to his word, if demons give way to his word, if death gives way to his word, as we read this morning in Matthew 9, so also sin must give way to his word. And it is only at his word that sin gives way. Feel your need for this one. Can you feel it? Feel how shaky the delusion of your self-sufficiency is. You need this one with this authority, for he alone can stand against sin. He alone can keep against sin. So much for the danger of our religious sins and your first sermon of the morning. (laughs) What on earth is fasting? (laughs) That's a good question to start with. What is biblical fasting? I say biblical fasting because you find fasting practiced in all sorts of religions. I'm sure you're aware of this. Perhaps even more pressing for our own day, fasting is very much in vogue in contemporary health and wellness circles. If you want to live forever, apparently you just need to fast on occasion. I don't know. Speaking tongue-in-cheek, it's amazing how quickly health and wellness can kind of take on the ilk of religious overtones. But there's a biblical idea of fasting that's distinct from these other ideas of fasting. So to start with, you're not extra holy if you skipped breakfast this morning. In fact, you might be on the road to sin because the one shared understanding about fasting between Jewish practice and early Christian practice is that fasting is forbidden on the Sabbath. (laughs) So if you skip breakfast, have a snack. (laughs) Fasting is not a practice that's new with the New Testament, and you hear that as the Lord just assumes its ongoing nature. He says when you fast, he doesn't describe it, he doesn't define it, he doesn't flush it out, he just acknowledges that it's a Practice. It was a very popular, regular practice at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can think of the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. He highlights his twice-weekly fasting as a mark of his righteousness, as a distinguishing characteristic of his exercise of religion, devotion unto God. It's similar with John's disciples. John's disciples come to the Lord and say, hey, why don't your disciples fast? We fast, the Pharisees fast, Your disciples don't fast. It was part and parcel to that religious devotion that was very much in the water, as it were, of Jewish religion at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to the Old Testament, you find fasting mentioned fairly often. 
You'll find unique and prolonged fasts by Moses and Elijah. Forty days they fasted, and interestingly, both then ascended Mount Sinai and had a unique face-to-face, as it were, encounter with the true and living God. You find public fasts proclaimed by the king. David proclaims a fast at the end of 1 Samuel upon the occasion of the death of Saul and Jonathan. Fasting would have been a part of mourning rituals at the time. You find fasts of repentance explicitly. The king of Nineveh, upon receiving Jonah's word, proclaims a fast that extends even to the animals to show the comprehensiveness which with God's word was received and a repentance that was then expressed by means of fasting. You find fasting in response to public calamity. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 8 hints that there's a public fast that's observed in the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, and the tenth month. All particularly significant dates in the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That great calamity which marked the life of Israel was responded to with public mourning. You also find fasts regularly accompanying prayers and petitions. Daniel's great prayer in chapter 9 is opened with a fast. David petitioning for the child who will soon die is marked by fasting in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Perhaps most significantly of all, there's only one fast that's commanded by God. All of these seem to be voluntary and occasional fastings, but there's one fast on which there's no negotiating whatsoever. Do you know what day that was? It was the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, God commanded that everyone fast. So we read in Leviticus 16, 29. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. That's the phrase it uses to communicate what's going on in fasting. You shall afflict yourselves. The verb literally means to put low. You shall put into a state of humiliation yourself. David uses the same phrase in Psalm 35, 13. I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. Sackcloth itself was a way of bringing closer to mourning, closer to lowliness, closer to a posture of humiliation which is what fasting is as well. And so you can feel how fitting it is for the Day of Atonement. For what was the Day of Atonement? It was a day of confession of sin. It was a day of acknowledging the moral bankruptcy, not just of one or two or five or ten, but of everyone. It wasn't just that a couple had failed. It was that everyone had failed. It wasn't just that they slightly failed. It was that they had rebelled against the true and living God in refusing to keep his word. Do you feel the fittingness of fasting there? It is putting oneself low. It's acknowledging emptiness. Acknowledging need. The emptiness that comes from sin. 
the need for forgiveness as that which you do not possess, as that which you must receive from outside of yourself. That's what seems to sit at the heart of fasting. You could go any number of ways with the significance of fasting. It's interesting that the Bible never spells out the logic of fasting exactly. So you're invited to sort of reflect on it, meditate on it. It doesn't spell it out for us, but the idea of emptiness seems to come close to it. When you fast, you are empty, so to speak. And thus to fast is to acknowledge with a certain fullness one's native emptiness, one's need to be filled, and one's looking to the true and living God as the only one who can fill. So you can feel the unseemliness of fasting and pride. It's very similar to the unseemliness of prayer and pride, for prayer is an expression of need, it's an acknowledgement of need, it's an acknowledgement of dependence, and that much more in fasting. To be an arrogant beggar, it's grotesque. To be one who carries themselves with pompousness, who has nothing, it's horrifying. Beloved, that's our pride. Feel something of its grotesqueness. Glimpse in the emptiness that's on display in fasting something of your true and helpless estate apart from the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it humble your native pride which is quick to see the things that you have as that which you have supplied yourself, failing to overlook the very simple fact that you've been given all of it. Let it work against that native pride which would arrange itself in pomposity towards other sinners, somehow thinking that you've managed better than they in this ultimate sense before the Lord. Let it work against your pride. It's unsurprising that the prophets take up a strand of deep criticism for the abuse of fasting, that Israel fasts in arrogance, that they're willing to forego bread as they exploit others, that they're willing to forego bread as they kill others. This is repugnant, and it's a critique that the Lord takes up similarly in our passage the double danger, not just of pride, but of pride's tendency to wear the thin mask of humility. So then what does this mean for us today as the church about fasting? Should we fast? Ought we to fast? Even just a brief sketch as I've tried to point out about the significance of fasting shows that it can be quite lovely and quite good. Some of the choicest servants of the Lord in the old era fasted Moses Daniel Zechariah I think the first thing to note is that in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ the time of the gospel fasting is permitted but not prescribed we can fast but we're not commanded to fast Jesus clearly permits fasting when he says when you fast This is confirmed to us as we see the apostolic church fasting in Acts 13 and in Acts 14. We'll return to that in a moment. On certain occasions. And so we're certainly allowed to fast. 
We may even be required to fast by virtue of our relative duties. I'll say more on that in a minute. But I think we should recognize that the New Testament is relatively quiet on fasting. It's rather remarkable that beyond the Gospels, there's almost complete silence on the practice of fasting. Arguably, the epistles don't say it, mention it, instruct us in it at all. Fasting does not receive the same attention as prayer, giving. Prayer is commanded. Giving is commanded. Fasting is permitted. (laughs) And that makes a certain amount of sense. You can imagine a, a healthy individual who doesn't run. You guys know I'm stupid into running. (laughs) You can imagine a healthy individual who doesn't run. There's all sorts of ways to be healthy. You can't imagine a a healthy individual who doesn't eat. (laughs) There's some things that seem to be good and appropriate and perhaps facilitate life. There are some things which are absolutely essential to life. So it's quite possible that you could go your entire Christian life without fasting and be in excellent spiritual health. Whereas if you neglect prayer, it's only going to be to the detriment of your spiritual life. It doesn't seem that fasting raises to that level. That's what Paul seems to suggest in Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If the kingdom is not a matter of eating and drinking, then neither is it a matter of not eating and drinking. Which means it doesn't sit at the level of essential, even if it may sit at the level of potentially good or allowable. I think this gives us pause in two respects. In one regard, we ought to be slow to insist upon or demand practices that scriptures say are permissible, but not commanded. You get the sense that if like, you're not fasting, somehow you're a lesser Christian. You, you can get that impression from some of the literature, that you haven't quite reached a certain level of holiness if you've never done this. It doesn't seem to be what scripture says. And we ought not to go beyond the lines that scripture sets in place. But in another regard, we ought to be slow to judge anyone who does practice what the Scripture says is permissible to practice. It's between them and their Lord, or between a church and their elders. It's not up to us to pronounce judgment upon the servant of another. So we do well when we avoid both those dangers. But if you do practice fasting, do it quietly. That seems to be the plain thrust of what the Lord says here. So this is our second observation. The first is that fasting is permitted but not prescribed. The second is, if you do fast, do it quietly. The Lord says this plainly, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, we're well familiar with the warning at this point. It's the same warning attending our giving and our prayers. We're tempted to do these things to get man's attention. We're tempted to do these things to curate a particular image for others. 
It's very much in vogue to sort of critique that very particularly manicured image that you can present on social media. These Instagram glamorous lives. But we do the same thing in the church, don't we? When we try to manufacture a certain image of ourselves in the minds of others by aping certain postures. Oh, come on. Get over yourselves. You do it. <laughs> There's any way, any number of directions you could take that. One, we love condemning others when we do the exact same version of the sin in our own churches, right? Those fake individuals on Instagram. And then we use our pious practices to manicure and curate images in the minds of others. Ours is arguably worse because it's not digital. <laughs> it's soulish. Mm. There's a constant temptation to mistake the true audience. All of our posturing before one another is ridiculous. It's absurd because it denies the only one who can see to the heart, as we've already mentioned. We care far too much about what others think and far too little about what God thinks. Is that fair? I was recently told that children are 800 times worse in their behavior with their mothers than they are with complete strangers. I don't know how that metric was devised, but my experience bears it out. <laughs> and it is a dreadfully good glimpse into the nature of our sinful hearts. The one to whom we owe our best is the one to whom we give our least. Those to whom we know, owe nothing at all are the ones we're eager to please in a perverse manner. And so it is for us when we practice our righteousness before men. I think we're also well served here in noting the specific danger of exaggerated gloominess. Now, I think this is a danger for anyone who practices religion, but I also think it's a specific danger for us in our confessional circles. Somehow, somewhere along the lines, people got the idea that gloominess is godliness. That solemnity is sanctification. <laughs> now again, there's a certain sense in which weight and gravity is utterly needed in these facile days. Everything feels lightless. Everything feels trivial. And so in a certain sense, when you come into the household of God, you should be ready to hear matters of eternal importance. And so in a sense, the household of God ought to be characterized by a certain sobriety, by a certain solemnity, because we speak of eternal matters. Your soul before the Lord, your eternal resting place, these things are far more important than we tend to think of them by our native instinct. At the same time, an overemphasis on severity gloominess certainly gives the wrong impression about the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who came that we may share in his life and his joy. Overemphasis on severity to the exclusion 
of gentleness, kindness, goodness, and joy is just aping one portion of a life lived in truth and thus shows that it's not steeped in truth. It whiffs more of these gloomy affectations which the Lord blatantly says are repugnant. (laughs) The men that I have met in my life who are characterized by godly gravity have also been some of the kindest and the gentlest men that I have ever encountered. Furthermore, we might point out that severity is not an end in and of itself. We treat matters with due gravity and seriousness so that men taking earnest stock of their true position might come unto the Lord Jesus Christ and know the joy of salvation now. <laughs> Let those with ears to hear here. Third, if you do press. If you do fast, do so prayerfully. Fasting is permitted, not prescribed. Fasting is to be done quietly. Fasting is to be done prayerfully. And by this, I mean two things. First, fasting is appropriate only at times of great importance, it seems. And then second, fasting and prayer go hand in hand. You get this from Acts 14. I'll read Acts 14 21 through 23, when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is one of the clearer glimpses we get into the Christian practice of fasting in terms of its occasion. Notice that it's a moment of great importance for the life of the church. It's the appointment of elders. And it's the seeking of the Lord's blessing upon the installation of these men in the very office that the Lord Jesus Christ had established. And so our fasting is not an indiscriminate. This is in juxtaposition to that twice-weekly, regular, sort of mindless fasting that, quite frankly, even the early church adopted pretty quickly. The post-apostolic church was arguing with the Jews not about the exact nature of fasting, but whether it ought to be done on a Monday and a Thursday or a Wednesday and a Friday, which seems to miss the heart of the matter with all due respect to those ancient divines. There's an occasional nature to fasting which requires discernment. Not every moment rises to the same level of significance in your life or in the life of the church. But again, mark how we're pretty ill-equipped to make that decision. Everything is sort of the next big thing. Everything is sort of the momentous occasion. Every headline is the end of the world. Every link that crosses your path is going to change your life. I'm speaking, well, no, I'm speaking in sadness because it's true. And you get exposed to that enough and you lose the ability to discern. It's like, all right, well, is this really that important? 
It doesn't seem like it's that important, but they're telling me it's that important. Is it that important? Discretion, discernment, which is why I say prayerfully, for the Lord is the one who gives wisdom. Other than the 40 days at the beginning of the Lord Jesus Christ's life, we don't know of any fast that he undertook. In fact, his life very much seemed to be characterized by non-fasting. As he was accused of eating and drinking unto excess, it was very clear that he engaged in eating. He wasn't known by fasting. And so something of that sort of pattern characterizes the life of the church. But we can also reason from the life of the body to the life of the individual. If it's most fitting that a church upon a momentous occasion enters into a season of praying and fasting, well, then we can reason from that to the life of the individual, perhaps as an individual in a season where a momentous decision, a momentous crossroads is approached, then praying and fasting seems to be appropriate there. But again, notice that it's not an end in and of itself. It's, it's employed as a means to seek the Lord. And that's why it's most fitting that it's attended with prayer. Now, I alluded earlier to the relative duty that might be placed upon you, and I don't want to blow past that. It, it's in the life of the corporate church. If you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1 on worship, there is a similar understanding of fasting that's reflected there, that there may be occasions in the life of the church where a session, elders have discerned that this is not a moment in our corporate life together that is of ordinary weight. It's of extraordinary weight. And so the call is for the entire church to engage in a season of prayer and fasting. And so by virtue of your relative duty to submit to that lawful authority given over unto the session, then a lawful and relative responsibility then opens up to fast. That doesn't rise to the level of absolute. Does that make sense? In God's providence, we're considering relative duties in the evening worship, so at least some of you have that category at hand. But an individual in a season of weight and circumstance, a church in a season of weight and circumstance, availing themselves not just of the gift of prayer, but of the gift of fasting, avails themselves of that posture of emptiness before the Lord. That says, I am in utter need of your wisdom, your provision, your direction, which I desire with everything that I have to be the rule by which I walk. And so those seasons seem appropriately marked by prayer and fasting, but also a heart directed unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the concluding point. If you do fast, do so feasting upon Christ. This is the tension that fasting takes on in a time when the Lord Jesus Christ promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does he teach his disciples in Matthew 9? We'll have time to consider this point further when we come to Matthew 9. When the disciples of John come to him and say, why don't your disciples fast? He says, because the bridegroom's here. It's utterly inappropriate to be at a feast and not feast. <laughs> And that's the reality of Christ coming as the bread of life, of Christ coming as the bridegroom of Christ, welcoming us to himself as those who are starving 
and who alone can feed not just 4,000, not just 5,000, but as many who come to him, as many who are given unto him by the Father. Our fasting has a fullness to it that fasting of old didn't have because the bread has come down from heaven. The emptiness that we know has been replaced by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit who fills us now with true life. That life which we had forfeited by our sin has now been restored unto us as we receive the pardon of the Son and the life that he alone gives. There's this great anticipation in the prophet Zechariah, that the day of fasting, indeed the days of fasting, marking the destruction of the temple, would be transmuted into feasts of joy as the temple is restored and God's people are gathered. Beloved, we would do ourselves a great disservice if we didn't see the truth of that reality already having dawned in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has gathered you unto himself that he has clothed you with the appropriate garment to come to the wedding feast, that he has purchased and prepared the table at the cost of his blood, that he has made known the riches of the Father whose glory is on display in gathering from east and west and north and south those upon whom he has set his everlasting love, those in whom his glory is made known by replacing your emptiness with his fullness, which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the drama we get to participate each week. As the words of institution ring forth on the night he was betrayed and our heads bow because whiffs of our treachery, whiffs of our cowardice, whiffs of our complicitness in crucifying the Lord of glory fill the room. And then he raises our heads. He says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The morning that comes as we grapple with our treachery and our sin is replaced by the joy that the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross for us. We walk the aisle weeping and we return full, <laughs> rejoicing. Those who go out with seeds, sowing in sadness, we sang 126 for a reason this morning, return with shouts of joy. Every week we get a vivid encounter with this. Whether you fast or not, hear the word, you're empty. <laughs> Whether you break your fast or not, hear the word, in Christ alone is the bread that satisfies. Whether you fast or not, you can know that even our temporary mourning will be replaced with a joy that is written all in all the day that he returns and he demonstrates how he sustained us by himself and has brought us safely to the feast. Beloved, this is our king. This is our God. Feel your need for him and cast yourself at his feet for he will satisfy. Join me in prayer. Our great God, we ask that you would press this word upon our hearts. You would posture us to receive it aright.
that you would prepare us even now to come to the table prepared for us and to receive of the bounty which you have opened in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would feel something of our native emptiness, that we may taste the excellencies of your fullness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.